Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 100 something. Is it 119? It's, no, that's right. It's 100 something. 100 something. I knew it. Yeah, yeah. It's I, 118. 118. Yeah. 118. Which reminds me, for 119, we'll be coming to you early. So in less than a week, but we don't know exactly when. Sometime on Saturday next week. Very slightly less than a week. Yeah. 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 Um, coming to you early. So we'll get back to you on what time that will be, but we will... Uh, we will be fresh and you should be sharp because it's going to be that kind of podcast. <laughs> and well, who knows, really. Um, at some point soon, and it kind of looks like it might be sooner than I was expecting, we're actually going to have a Dark Horse site where we can put announcements like that. So if for for whatever reason of keeping your sanity, you don't happen to be on Twitter, which seems to be the only place that we ever announce these things. It's also up on the YouTube channel, of course, but um, you could you could go there and uh, and find whether or not we are off for a week or doing something different in terms of timing. Anyway, we'll next week. Dark Horse Iron Sight. Will we? Yes. Are you sure? Of course. Mm-hmm. It's a dog whistle of some kind. I have no idea what kind, of course, but... If you're that kind of See, dog, I was spelling you'll know. sight differently, but okay. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Uh, no, you were, weren't you? I yeah. Think, yeah. 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 In like my building head. site. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. and website. Right. Well, I'm thinking website is like a building site. It's like a virtual. Yeah, but you were talking about a totally different kind of site, weren't you? Who knows? I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about mask mandates and how they have lifted where we live as of today. Uh, I, last week, had been sent an excerpt from The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell, his 1937 book, and I read an excerpt which I found astounding and was so intrigued by what I looked into about the book that this week I read the book. Mostly I listened to the book, but uh, and, I, and I got a tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny little copy of it. I don't expect it to come so small, but um, uh, it's tiny font, too. It's like, I don't know. Like eight point font. Anyway, um, I want to share some more of Orwell's ruminations on socialism for us to talk about this cool. week. It does strike me that you and I are, are in a position to navigate this for civilization. Can we agree that listening to a book is reading a book? It seems to me that that counts. It does count, but it is a completely different experience for for you know I for some people. Uh, Right. It's a, it's, so the, this this could be a, a riff for a whole episode, of course. Yes, I, it a hundred percent counts. Uh, for me, I just ended up doing a lot of walking this week, and I was listening to it um, yeah, uh, while, I, say... while I was walking. But every time I would hear something that I wanted to take a note of, I'm like. How do I do that? Uh, and and so it's it was it was much more tedious, frankly. And so I had this tiny tiny little book, um, and then I also have a, a PDF copy, which was easier to search, um, but harder to know. What I, it, it just it, I said both because I actually did do both, and I won't remember it if it just comes in my ears unless I take a note at the time. Whereas uh, for you, it's somewhat the opposite. Well, I'm not arguing that they're the same. They're not the same for me either. Um, for whatever reason, even given my uh, you know visual um, oddities, I still get a very visual memory of where something is. If I read something on paper and I go looking for it later, I know roughly, you know, which side of the book it's on, what place in the page. So, you know, I have that experience too. My sense is if somebody says, you know, 1984, have you read it? And you listen to it. Yeah, you can say yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. Um, If you saw the movie, the answer is no. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If if the text as it was written by the author has come into your head, 
um, either through your eyes or through your ears, then you have effectively read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, Settled. So we're going to talk a little bit, bit about Orwell on socialism and vegetarians and feminists. And he, he's a weirdo. <laughs> he's, I like he, he's he is deep. And my God, did he die too young? He died in his late forties yeah. of tuberculosis. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about SARS-CoV-2 because what we don't we. Well, there are forces that would prefer that we cut it out, but... Um, well, I, I'm one of them. I wish that we could. Oh, me too. <laughs> yes. Me too. But uh, yeah, we, yeah, we will get to why we can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to talk just a little bit about detransitioning in general. I don't... Uh, I just Detransitioning from having transitioned uh, using medical and using surgical hormonal techniques to um, appear to be the sex that you are not. Um, today is... I've now forgotten... Um, it is D-Trans Awareness Day. And, you know, in general, I don't like these, you know, days, weeks, months that get um, described as this is the day in which you have to think about these things. Uh, but um, there are some events that are happening today, and I want to talk a little bit, just a little bit about about that. Um, we probably won't end up getting to the diet of snakes this week, um, but uh, there's some research that when we don't get to it this week, I will then say, let's talk next week about the diet of snakes, because that's something I've been thinking about. And uh, I have a question about it, about the diet of snakes. Yeah. So either we'll get there this week or next week, but yeah. uh, I, I have a question to ask you. About. Well, given how much else was going on and uh, that I only uh, skimmed the research paper in question once and I went down a few rabbit holes, snake holes even maybe, uh, about... Snakes go down rabbit holes. Right, so exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did. I did not spend probably enough time yet with the with the research uh to to talk a lot but uh bring your a game <laughs> this is uh trash talking for biologists it's a, right. a whole different thing um all right so uh announcements first announcements we uh we've been doing we've been on a couple of other people's podcasts uh, this week, and we'll be in the next few weeks yeah, again about yeah, some really great ones, and we'll you know we'll announce when those come out. We did a we started doing a really bad job of <clears throat> announcing all of the podcasts that we were doing for the book uh, because we did um, you know many dozens of them in the few months after the book. This book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the Twenty First Century, came out, and. Um, I mean, like, I don't even know if we announced um, being on Andrew Yang's podcast or Jordan Peterson's, and you know, we just did, we started to do a very poor job of of talking well, about it. But now, now there's few enough now that um, specifically, uh, well, both of the conversations we had this week were excellent. So um, we encourage you to look for those, and we'll announce them when they come out. But also to pick up the book and and take a look at it. At it, we specifically were talking a fair bit about uh, the medicine chapter this week, the evolution of medicine, and um, how it is that we can keep ourselves healthy in a uh, in a world that seems hell-bent on keeping us not healthy. I will also just add, um, I think you and I both have a kind of uncomfortable relationship with uh, self-promotion or anything that looks like it. Mm-hmm. And I think this is good. I think, frankly, you know, as a scientist, you're not supposed to be a self-promoter. Of course, as we talked about last week, the yeah. culture of uh, yep. pursuing of grants and all this turns everybody into a salesman. But mm-hmm. especially as the world um, of people who uh, would like you to stop talking about things you're talking about is accusing you of all manner of grifterism, uh, mm-hmm. it makes it particularly hard to 
remember to say, oh, by the way, we were on this, that, and the other podcast. Yeah. Check them out. Um, so anyway, maybe uh, we are in a new era. Are we? Well, yes. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> promising it's a better era, but I do oh. believe we are in a new era. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what the implications of that are. Um, I think the implications of that are the president of Ukraine is very handsome and dances well, and we are therefore supposed to be in favor of uh, invading uh, to drive Russia out. There are a few too few pronouns in that sentence for me to know exactly who's who all we're in the favor, favor of invading, but... Uh, uh, invading Ukraine in its own defense, I think, is the uh, conventional wisdom. Okay. Uh, I, do you, do you want to go there? Because I thought we were still doing announcements. Oh, well, yeah, I guess that doesn't qualify. Um, we will, the Dark Horse podcast will not be invading Ukraine. We, you're looking at me like, I just I don't know why we're here at all. Rails. This all does right. not seem right. Um, we are on YouTube and Odyssey, and um, and for those of you who are listening later, uh, we also um, are up on Spotify. But right now, if you're if you're watching, uh, chat is live on Odyssey. You can ask your questions at uh, darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, once again, I will. I in, unfortunately, it seems that I need to say this. We don't get to all the questions. We don't um, say that we would. We don't claim that we will get to all the questions. So if you ask a question, you are um, asking it in the hope that we get to it. But um, but we do not, and so um, you are not. You're not paying for a guaranteed uh, service in that regard. Um, our Patreons continue continue to hum along with some. Um, with some enthusiasm, they both provide access to the Dark Horse community, which at the moment is housed on a Discord server. That is probably going to change at some point soon. We will keep you updated with exactly where that community is going to go. You can get uh, merchandise with direwolves and epic tabbies and digital book burnings and such at store.darkhorsepodcast.org. Find my weekly writings at naturalselections.substack.com. And uh, this week I reprised my What If We're Wrong essay that was published in Aereo uh, some 10 months ago, along with a fairly long preamble about uh, why we still need to be thinking about this, because it seems to me that almost no one who needed to hear that essay actually listened the first time around. And without further ado, uh, with some help from the cats, uh, we have three sponsors this week, uh, as we as we usually do at this point. As always, we are very grateful uh, for them and to them. And Brett is going to start us off. Yes, uh, All Form Sofas is our first sponsor. Uh, they are a company that makes absolutely terrific custom sofas. What makes the sofa terrific? For a fraction of the cost of traditional sofas, you can customize size, layout, fabric, and color. They do armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight-seat sectional. And you can start small and buy more seats later on without needing to get a whole new sofa. All form sofas are delivered directly to your home, free and fast, and assembly is easy. And I can tell you that it is. I've just assembled my second one. Uh, we've got a beautiful sectional all-form sofa in whiskey leather. It's soft and supple and warm, unlike a lot of leather. We all pile on it to watch movies some evenings. It looks gorgeous and is incredibly inviting and comfortable, a rare combination. 
We like it so much that we've just gotten a second one, as I strangely mentioned a paragraph ago. Also, some listeners asked if all form holds up to pets. Why, yes, it does. The leather that all form uses is 20% thicker than typical furniture leather and shows no wear, despite the fact that both cats and dogs lie on the couch many evenings. Absolutely no wear so far. If you prefer fabric, all form fabrics are three and a half times more durable than the industry standard for heavy duty fabrics, so their fabrics are going to hold up really well with pets also. Finally, they offer a forever warranty, literally forever. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash darkhorse. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash darkhorse. That's A-L-L-F-O-R-M dot com slash darkhorse. Our second sponsor this week, uh, listeners will be well familiar with Vivo Barefoot. Uh, we've had, um, we've run ads from them for the last several weeks and uh, man, it seems to correlate with me hearing more and more from people who are, you know, writing in to, to tell me about something else or to, you know, note of appreciation to also say, and I just got my first pair of Vivo Barefoot. So um, we're, we're super pleased when we hear that because these shoes really, um, really do make a difference. They really do feel like they are a fix for so much of what ails the modern foot. Um, they are shoes made for feet. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of what feet should be and be constrained by, and usually that someone doesn't actually know feet or what they can do. Vivo Barefoot, in contrast, knows feet. Vivo Barefoot isn't driven by fashion, but man, oh man, are these shoes a revelation. We love them. They're beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. Our feet are the products of millions of years of evolution, and so strangely are yours. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot, but modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis, one in which people move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. It's an odd little club, easily recognizable because the shoes are a little unusual looking. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 20% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse. And our final sponsor of the week is Public Goods. Public Goods was one of our very first sponsors last year, and we are as pleased with them now as when we first tried their products. Public Goods can simplify your life as a one-stop shop for everyday essentials. Their ingredients are carefully sourced, high quality, and affordable. Public Goods has coffee and tea, grains and oils, like olive and avocado. They've got Castile soap and trash bags and essential oils. They have spices and extracts like vanilla and almond, vinegars, pastas, dishware and glassware. There is so much at Public Goods to make a meal, including the materials to serve it on. Public Goods products have great design, too. The aesthetic is simple and clean, and there are no garish colors. They care about health and sustainability. Public Goods products are largely free of harmful ingredients and additives, and the ingredients are ethically sourced. Finally, their subscription service is efficient and simple and easy to use. Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place. It really is an everything store. So if you're looking for a replacement for the everything store you currently use, consider Public Goods. For Dark Horse listeners, we have the following offer. Receive $15 off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are going giving you 15% to spend on your first purchase with no minimum. Go to publicgoods.com slash darkhorse. 
forward slash dark horse. I never say, I, I'm never consistent about the forward slash and slash. Mm. Yeah. I think everyone knows what direction the slash goes though. Yeah, I agree. Go to publicgoods.com forward slash dark horse or use code dark horse at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S.com forward slash dark horse to receive $15 off your first order. Again, we thank, we thank our sponsors very much. Okay. You want to start by talking about the lifting of the mask mandates here in Oregon and I think across the entire West Coast. Yes. Um, I mean, I think maybe it makes sense to point out uh, winter is leaving. God, yeah. Um, here in the Pacific Northwest, it seems to have just kind of given up. Well, um, today, so I was out walking today and I saw a lot of things apropos of the mask mandates. It was just gorgeous out. And according to my phone, it's going to start raining before we're done live streaming today and it's never going to stop. Uh, like it's I'm, just going to be raining forever. Well, and our spring rains aren't like that, you know, rain that we're famous for here where it just kind of drizzles all the time. No, the spring, spring rains, rains can be tumultuous. Yes, they can be intense. Yeah. Um, so question for you. I, you and I haven't talked about what you saw on your walk uh, this morning. Our mask mandate ended today. Yep. Um, so that is something that will mean very little to people in some parts of the country where even where they've had mask mandates, people haven't necessarily been adhering to them. Yeah. But in the Pacific Northwest, they absolutely have. And yeah. um, it has been uh, oppressive. Now, I will, you know, there are certainly probably people who have joined us more recently in our in our trajectory of live streams who won't know where we started on this. So we will revisit some of that. But what you saw today as you walked around any difference between what you would have seen today and a week ago? Yes. Um, specifically inside. So I went to a market to pick up um, some meat and such for dinner. Um, and in the market, there were still a few people masked, but almost no one uh, was was at this point. And of course, a week ago, everyone was. Every, last night, everyone was. And But outside, uh, where for a, for a long time now, most people have not been masked, although at a moment, and I think I mentioned this in the live stream at some point last summer, maybe, I don't remember exactly what time of year it was, but I was walking actually in the very same park I was walking today by the river, um, unmasked, alone, and a lady yelled at me about, you know, saving people's lives and not being selfish. Uh, and I thought at the time, man, are people confused? Good Lord, are people confused about what it is, what it takes to um, actually... Um, do your job as a citizen and, and be responsible because thinking for yourself is actually a hell of a lot more important than virtue signaling with something that doesn't help anyone. Um, but um, outside today, actually, I did not detect a change. And maybe maybe you would expect that, that there is still, um, I would say now actually inside and outside is a match. There's maybe 10% of the people who are still walking around masked. Um, but you know, we, we went out to dinner last night and asked the waitress, um, you looking forward? You're looking forward to this, and we'd asked a, a another uh, another weight person a week or two ago, and um, he had said, "Nah, I don't really need it. You know, yeah, you know, it's fine. Take it or leave it, yeah. right?" And this waitress last night was like, "Oh my God, I am going to cut this thing into little pieces as soon as I can and never wear it again." So you know, people are having different responses to uh, to this seemingly endless experience of putting fabric on your face yeah uh so anyway yeah i think it's it uh, i wish i had thought to predict that the 
uh, inside environment would start looking like the outside environment because basically the outside environment are people who are mask focused and have been doing this voluntarily, yeah. you know, uh, since the mask phenomenon began. Now, ironically, the mask... Well, here and elsewhere too, but we talked in, you know, spring of 2020 when you know, they were closing down beaches, they were closing down parks, they were basically concentrating people into small spaces to, you know, help reduce the spread of disease. Never made sense. Um, but there were signs up once the parks reopened. Um, and, you know, the beaches I'm talking about were in California. I don't remember to the degree that there were beaches closed in Oregon, but... Um, once the parks reopened, which yeah. is insane, um, but you know we have some very big, you know, hundreds of acres parks here in uh, in Portland. There were signs up that said you absolutely must wear a mask, right. and I never, I never did. I refused to. But at that point, I was, I would be the only one on the trail without a mask. And pe- I mean, I remember a couple people leapt out of my way, you know, in order right. to, you know, reduce their chances of contracting something from, you know, outside. And it, so, so there was an expectation here for a while. Yes, if you there, were outside, there was, and. Yeah. So I want to revisit where we've come from okay. um, because, uh, frankly, in going back to find photographs to remind myself of where we came, uh, came from in the pandemic, uh, you know, I knew all of this, but it was jarring actually to see some of the photographs from the beginning. So, Zach, do you want to begin to show those and I'll describe them for people who are just listening? Um, so these are photographs. I believe these are from March of 2020. Two years ago. Two years ago. Um, so uh, just to revisit, Heather and I were in the Amazon finishing the first draft of our book and heard about novel coronavirus for the first time as our phones came awake after uh, being in complete isolation where there was no service of any kind. So that was January. That was January. Um, so we returned and the story of uh, novel coronavirus, which became uh, SARS-CoV-2 and covid uh, marched on. So what this is a picture of here, some of you will remember that early Dark Horse episodes were not live streams. They were all uh, discussions between me and somebody uh, in person, and they were in a different place. Um, we built this studio into my office as COVID forced us out of the studio that we were renting in downtown Portland. And so this is the not photograph. Not a moment too soon. Right. This is the photograph. Zach and I recaptured everything we could from the studio downtown in a mad rush. We were literally going into the building at midnight so we wouldn't interact with people because nobody knew how this thing spread and how dangerous it was. I think it was literally, I'm just looking at the calendar, like we are literally two years to the day from the last day that Zach was in school. The following day was Toby's last day of school, and then that weekend is when you guys right. uh, emptied out the studio. So the kids were thrown out of school mm-hmm. en masse. Zach and I took the Dark Horse studio and took every piece that would move and brought it home mm-hmm. um, and started going to the hardware store to get the kinds of things necessary to make the studio work. So, all Like right. the interior of a sauna. Right, like mm-hmm. the materials from the interior of a sauna, mm-hmm. cabinets, and the like. All right, so go ahead and hear an, an image. Okay, so at this time, there was <coughs> hoarding of, and I don't want to say hoarding. I think that's actually the wrong term. People mm-hmm. were stocking up on materials, yep. not knowing what was coming. And actually, I don't think they were wrong in this regard. We have mm-hmm. now seen supply chain issues. Yes, they were delayed, but of course, the idea that we were in an unstable situation and that one couldn't guarantee that staples were going to be available was very much in the air. I thought all the supply chain issues were due to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. 
Is that not right? Or? No, because of Time's Arrow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Also, it's funny how no one in the mainstream media seems to have noticed Yeah, that. the inflation also turns out to have been well underway before that invasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, go advance. Uh, so that was beans that were uh, out of stock. Interestingly, people spotted that, uh, you know, black beans uh, were the right thing, but there were lots of other beans they left on the shelves. <laughs> that's um, true. Yeah, lentils were always, always right. consistently available, so that's actually. good to know. And actually, I, I didn't include a picture here, but I had a picture of the peanut butter section where people have not spotted just what a good staple that is. Mm -hmm. um, so you could buy peanut butter even if you couldn't buy beans. This is surprising to me. you got a whole bunch of Dr. Bronner's on the bottom shelf. That's Castile soap. That stuff saves forever. You can do it, use it for almost anything you want to clean. Yep. Huh. Yeah, no, the deeper you read into that bottle, the more things you discover it's good for. <laughs> right. It's uh, it works as There may be a little a evangelism there, but okay. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude was a little out there. Yeah. But, you know, here we got hand sanitizer has been uh, ransacked. Now, notice ransacked. Um, hand sanitizer didn't actually turn out to be important here, but we all thought it was going to be very plausibly so. Now, hand sanitizer is good stuff, and a lot of infectious disease that we spread around, colds and flu and the like, um, is likely very sensitive to it. So I, I don't resent the bias towards hand sanitizer that we've moved to, but I uh, we all remember the uh, the craze around uh, isopropyl alcohol, which you couldn't get, and um, hand sanitizer, which turned out to be more or less irrelevant to COVID. Yep. Um, okay. Advance one more. Now here, this is a line out the door at the local gun shop. Right? People were hoarding. Mm -hmm. Now, I got to find a better term. People mm -hmm. were stocking up on guns and even more importantly, ammunition. And it was resulting in a store that would never typically have a line, having a line out the door. I wrote a little bit about this mm -hmm. uh, for Unheard, where I discussed the question of the Second Amendment and what role um, it, it may actually be playing. But anyway, that's the local gun store and the, the line that existed there. Can you go one more? And here you can see a wall of um, ugly duckling guns that people didn't really want. Um, but you can see how many spaces are empty on that wall, right, as people are buying. Now, the thing that was really in short supply was ammunition. That's, that's a wall that normally would have been um, full. Every spot would have had a, a gun, and, um, and it got it dwindled more than that. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was the ammunition that, that just simply wasn't available anywhere, much like hand sanitizer. Okay, advance one more. All right, now here is why I was going back to look for photos. Um, I was one of the first people to mask in Portland. I was so early that I was the only person at the hardware store. Zach and I were getting materials to build the studio here. Um, I was going in masked with those are safety glasses with uh, a little bit of side reading flanges. glasses oh. in, in the yeah and they have side flanges yeah. and I had a technique and the basic idea was nobody knew how this thing transmitted at that point it's true it everyone was talking about fomites and very right. high CFRs and all this yep. so it stood to reason that a mask was a good idea even if nobody else was wearing them maybe especially if nobody else is wearing them it stood to reason that because many viruses do get in through your eyes that having safety glasses on was a good idea um, and in order that they didn't interact badly with my reading glasses, I got the reading glasses built in. I also uh, used cloth gloves. You could buy a, like 10 gloves for five, 10 pairs of gloves for five bucks. And I would 
put them on, wear them while I was out, so while I touched things, and then I would strip them off. I would actually, early on, strip off all my clothes when I got home and put on new clothes. So if this thing was transmitting on clothing, right, you and I had, you, your discovery was that copper actually yep, is... Yep, I, I covered our um, outdoor and indoor-to-outdoor doorknobs with copper tape. Copper tape. <laughs> because copper uh, is both an antiviral and antibacterial. Right. We had a policy that when and things... And it looks nice. When, <laughs> When packages arrived in the cardboard box, as they all do, we would leave them sit for 24 hours because the evidence was that uh, infectious agents couldn't persist on cardboard for longer than that. So anyway, we had an elaborate uh, routine that was based on the fact that we really knew very little about this pathogen. And one of the things... And we're trying to be careful. We were we were erring in the, in the direction of being careful because we took this virus very seriously for reasons we will get back to later. Mm -hmm. um, but... I think one of the things that I hope people will remember about us is that what, what we really did and what got people's attention early on when we started live streaming, your idea, that we start live streaming from here. Was it? Yep, it was your idea. Um, so you're in good company. Joe Rogan suggested that <laughs> I start a podcast. You suggested that we start live streaming. Yeah, well, we were sitting there. I do remember this. We were, we were, we were pulling our hair out about the public health pronouncements already at that point. They were so inconsistent. They seemed to be based on no data or patently absurd analyses. And I, and yeah, I think I said to you something like, I really feel like we've got a lot that we can offer in terms of how to think through these things, even though, even though and we knew this, and therefore we knew that there was uh, a substantial risk um, that we could have been really wrong on a lot of fronts and you know we were wrong on a few fronts which well, you're about to get to but you know the basic basically the idea was we we approach the world scientifically and evolutionarily and the the second is a subset um of of the first and not everyone who has a scientific toolkit has an evolutionary toolkit. Uh, but boy, would we love to be able to help other people use those toolkits to make decisions for themselves and to start tracking when it is that their own predictive abilities are getting better and better so that they can trust themselves more and more and rely less and less on external authorities who, oh, by the way, may have interests that do not align with yours. Okay. So I want to go back and refine one thing. Okay. You said we could have been really wrong. Okay, not worried about wrong. Mm -hmm. We erred in the right direction. We erred in the careful direction, mm -hmm. and we have done that from the beginning. And we did get some things wrong. Masks are one of the things I personally got wrong. Okay, but I got it wrong in the correct direction. And one of the things that I think you and I got um, the got attention that was very positive, and I hope people will remember, is that what we did was we started with a model that effectively assumed this thing could transmit any of the ways that these things transmit. Mm -hmm. And as data came in and it became clear that this wasn't fomite transmission, mm -hmm. that uh, there was something very important about the volume of air and the rate at which it was turning over so that it wasn't like you contact a particle and you get sick. It's like there's a period of time, there's a clock ticking, and the air circulation and the volume of the room and how sick the person that you're talking to is, all of them play a role. And so we built Density up a model. dependence at all of, the, all of the stages of interface between virus and person. Right. And we, um, you know, we uh, used what we called, uh, you know, um, I'm now forgetting the term we applied to it, something like the uh, the real volume of the room or the, um, the effective volume. Effective volume, yep. Effective volume. So a car is a very tiny effective volume. You open the windows, the volume jumps. You go outside, the effective volume goes to infinity. Mass and transit where you don't have an ability to open windows. You expect 
expect things to be bad. And I, I do think, um, you know, we we never, as much as we were erring on the side of caution, uh, neither of us ever thought it was necessary or a good idea to um, be applying those kinds of measures outside. Outside, wow. we understood, and you know, I've, I found a I found a paper very early yep. that, that had come out of China very early um, that it looked that it tried to track the the origin of tens of thousands of cases. Sure it was China. Yeah, it was, um, and and it was um, there was I think only one case out of the tens of thousands yep. that they could actually track to an outdoor transmission, and it was a very very sick person talking at very close range loudly to his neighbor, if memory serves, and. Um, and effectively, he was, you know, right. the The recipient of the virus in that case was right in the funnel of, you know, an active infection, and you know that I, I am I am very grateful that we weren't we weren't wrong on that because well, I, I think you're even being too cautious here, okay. right? Because I think the real story is mm-hmm. um, there was a an opposing force, right? There's this thing. I think the original is Rahm Emanuel who once said. Uh, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Rahm Emanuel being a democratic political gunslinger, effectively. But I think what happened, the best case here, right? The best case is that people took advantage of a crisis to accomplish things that they wanted to accomplish anyway, many of which are very much not in the public's interest. Mm -hmm. But I think you and I ended up on the opposite side of a conversation with an enemy we did not know existed, right? Which were people who were using the pandemic for purposes. We thought as, you know, as a normal person would, that we're all in this together. We're all faced with this virus and figuring out what to do about it is a project everybody should be involved in and people should be bringing whatever tools to bear um, that they have at their disposal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what actually happened is that as, you know, this thing wanted to create fear, right? It wanted to create fear and it had useful tools at its disposal that were also potentially in play with respect to controlling the virus. So it pretended, uh, after it was clear in the data mm-hmm. that the outdoor environment was safe, it continued to pretend that it wasn't because its purpose really wasn't about the virus. Its purpose was about um, controlling people. And so you and I became increasingly alarmed uh, as this thing insisted that the outdoor environment was a place that you needed to mask. And our point was there actually isn't any evidence of that. So Mm -hmm. as you and I developed uh, a model of how the virus functions, how it transmits, and what therefore we could relax about the many measures. I mean, remember, we're talking about going out with sacrificial gloves, with with safety (laughs) glasses, with... Uh, a, a mask, right? What of this can we relax because it's actually not relevant to the transmission of this pathogen? At the same point, you and I looked at the evidence uh, and it was quite clear that there was something about the outside environment that was safe. It was mm-hmm. unclear initially whether or not it was safe at night because one of the reasons it might be safe was UV light, mm-hmm. right? And so it became clear, actually, that there were two reasons it was safe outside. One was UV light, but that even at night, this was not transmitting outside. And so the point was, what we were doing was refining a model, starting with a very careful, overly careful response, and refining it and relaxing it as uh, as 
as it became clear that you could relax it. And my point about the mask mandates, which ended today, is that we are watching that other thing, which had other purposes, finally having to admit mm. that it was being overly restrictive. Yep. We can talk about how we know that that's what's going on uh, a little later. But I think that you and I actually forced the conversation to admit things like the outdoor environment isn't the same. And to the extent that you're claiming that you want people masked for epidemiological reasons, um, you know, 99% of the world, more than 99% of the world is in fact safe. And you've got people believing that the world is 100% dangerous. Why would you do that? Yeah. Well, okay, a few things. One is I went back and found this paper, which was published in 2021, but I got the preprint from April 2020. You can put it up if you like, Zach. Um, I was wrong. It wasn't tens of thousands. It was um, a couple thousand um, cases that they that they were able to trace. Um, it was China, um, as I said, from from January and February. Um, so, you know, this is this is extraordinarily early in what we are told um, yeah. was was when it was spreading. Um, so anyway, not um, not as as huge a data set as I thought, but still still very large. Um, and then, you know, one of the other things um, that, you know, we were thinking early on was, well, you know, homeless, the homeless population is going to be very at risk of this, unless, you know, the outdoors is protective. Yep. And sure enough, we've seen no uh, evidence of super spreader events either, or, you know, or super spreader or just massive spread either within the homeless populations or among protests. Right. And so again, people will remember, I think that by, um, sort of April and May of 2020, there had begun to be protests by people, um, objecting to, uh, to lockdowns. And you know, as I remembered, it was mostly about lockdowns. And it was mostly people um, who were identified by the mainstream media as being right of center, regardless of what their politics actually were, I don't know. Um, and these protests were decried widely, right? Like this, this was going to itself cause more spread of COVID and how dare these people, how selfish. And then within weeks of those protests, uh, George Floyd died, and the protests, of course, erupted first um, first in Minneapolis and then throughout the U.S. and then throughout the world, really. And there were just massive protests. You know, here in Portland, I think it was over 100 consecutive nights of protests that then reliably became riots. And, um, and at that point, that over a thousand, I think, I think I do have that order of magnitude, right? Over a thousand health professionals declared that the real pandemic was racism and therefore these protests were not just justified, but actually necessary. Anyone who still thought that we were living in a world in which we were be being given advice based on data and not on ideology could pretty much conclude at that point that at least a substantial portion of the health policy and public health apparatus was completely out to lunch and you know not in fact doing what the job description suggests doing um, that said as much as those protests especially at the point that reliably in portland and in some other places they turned into riots every night um, during the summer and, and fall of 2020 as much as they were disruptive of an incredible amount of of humanity and goodwill um, they were not super spreader events yep. any more than the protests uh in the spring of 2020 against the lockdowns and and such were super spreader events any more than um there were there was a lot of transmission among homeless people and the common theme in all of 
of those is, of course, being outside. Yeah, which we predicted, actually, at the right. point that uh, many were saying, you know, we were talking about the BLM riots and saying these are going to be super spreader events. Our point was we're not in favor of these riots, as we've described many times. But right. It's not clear that these are a hazard in this regard. Right. You and I went uh, to see for ourselves. We, a few times, yep. Knowing that the outdoor environment was likely to be safe, but being mm -hmm. concerned that this was highly concentrated and taking place at night where you didn't have UV mm -hmm. light as a disinfectant. Um, and there were people yelling, right? I mean, the, yelling yeah, right. and singing such as it was. Um, yeah, toneless. But oh God. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Dur you and I... Dirge-like protest songs. Yeah, yeah. dirge-like. That's being generous. But, um, but you and I behaved... <clears throat> exactly consistently with what we've described here, right? We believed it to be safe on the mm -hmm. basis that it was outside, and we knew what the evidence suggested about the outside. Mm -hmm. We knew that night was probably safe, but you and I kept moving so that if we mm -hmm. were downwind of somebody who was sick, we would not. We would have a high enough effective volume around us that we wouldn't contract the virus. So I think we now know that effectively, especially early on in the pandemic, it simply wasn't transmitting outside night or day, mm -hmm. um, that it would have been safe. But erring in the direction of caution is the refinement. We've done that and we have relaxed our approach as it has become clear that certain things are safe and other things are not. Okay, can you go to the next photo, Zach? Um, so I'm trying to remember. Okay, that's the last photo. <clears throat> so here's Zach and me. Uh, oh, there's you sporting the uh, chili pepper bandana. Yeah. Now I will say that's my uh, that's my tropical bandana. That's what that is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, as the pandemic continued, mm -hmm. it became clear. So I had initially thought that cloth masks uh, would be sufficient because the droplets that were being transmitted were large enough that they would be caught. It became clear that that Do we need to keep that up. Uh, we can move on. Okay. Um, it became clear that if masks were going to be useful at all, that it wasn't going to be cloth masks. So um, moving away from cloth masks uh, was a move in the other direction, right? Not masking outside was a relaxation. Moving to masks that were more likely to be effective uh, was a move in the other direction. But anyway, the point was we were developing a model. This is Zach and me in the elevator as we were disassembling the, the downtown studio. Is that the last image? Last image. Okay. Um, so now the mandates have come, the mask mandates have come to an end. There are many people in Portland vowing to continue masking. My guess is that won't last, but it will be interesting to see. Um, but nonetheless, there are at least three things about the way this mandate has come to an end. I believe what happened is the narrative collapsed and they were forced to lift the mandate because it was too much too obvious, too many, it was too much of a regular joke that, um, you know, you need to wear your mask as you're walking to the table. But once you sit down, you know, our joke was, you know, that you've descended out of the COVID layer mm -hmm. and you're now seated at the table. But the point was, it's, yeah, it's COVID just, is like tiramisu. Right. <laughs> it comes stratified. Well, this goes back to what we were talking about last week, where they had us in a mindset where it was like, you're making an effort. And both you're putting on your mask to walk to the table and taking off your mask when you get to the table are effort. Well, but it's it's also well, maybe I, I have some place to go here, but you were you were on a roll. Um, so I just want to point out that at the point that the narrative had come apart and it became clear that the masks were not effective at controlling this virus, um, they decided to lift them. But 
even in lifting them. It was evident that this was about control and not about epidemiology. And the places that you can see that. So first of all, the mandates themselves, right? Are masks valuable? Well, the cloth ones don't appear to be, right? So if you were going to have a mandate, you could mandate masks that stood a chance of actually controlling the virus. To the extent that the mandates were just that you need to mask, then that's clearly about effort and not epidemiology. Well, and um, it's, it's, again, the snitches with stars on their bellies versus the snitches without. Like, do you have a public indicator of compliance? Can we see that you are willing to comply? Right. Um, we, you know, we're long since past. You know, early, early on, people, including us, thought that they were um, effective, and I was, you know, it was, it was disturbing to see masks worn badly. Like, you know, really, <laughs> you know, it's going to be below your nose, or you're going to poke a hole in it in order to play the clarinet. Like, you know, these these pictures that have that have shown up. Like, who who is thinking through this at all, right? Um, but over time. Uh, you know, there's so many people who were just wearing them sloppily such that it was patently, like there there could be no epidemiological um, story that made sense. Um, it was just about, are you being a good, uh, you know, a good little person or not? Are you complying? It's the inverse of uh, the yellow star, right? The, the, idea, the, the, the Nazis star of David. forcing Jews to wear yeah. uh, a star of David to label them effectively as lesser people, mm -hmm. right? In this case, it was a twist on that, where the idea was the masks indicate that you were a good person. Mm -hmm. um, and that was obviously, it was obviously nonsense because it, they didn't make an attempt to limit it to places where the masks actually stood a chance of being useful or to limit it to masks that might actually be useful. And then at the point that the narrative fell apart around these people, and everybody was joking about um, the absurdity of the mask policy, right? They didn't do what would reasonably have been done by anybody who understood that there was a downside to the masks, right? A downside for children, for example, developmentally, mm -hmm. right? They didn't say, okay, mask mandate is over effective immediately. This is a mandate that took nothing uh, from the point of view of architecture. You didn't need anything. There was no, you know... You didn't need crews to go out and do anything. You just needed to declare it over. And so instead, what they did is they said, okay, a month out, the mask mandate will be coming to an end, as if that has anything to do with science. And then, oh, the narrative crumbled a bit faster than they were anticipating. And so they moved the date back on us, proving that the initial date, which was a month out, was completely arbitrary in in the first place, right? So, Well, I mean, it's a little bit... In this case, I have even less justification. But, you know, we used to joke that uh, mosquitoes obey international boundaries uh, because if you were traveling through Central America, you were going to need your malaria prophylaxis in Nicaragua and in Panama, but not in Costa Rica because Costa Rica is malaria-free. And somehow Costa Rica is malaria-free, but of course, so are the areas of Nicaragua and Panama that are near. Um, and maybe, I don't know, actually, maybe at this point, Panama is entirely in... Um, the canal zone is, I don't The canal know. zone is, you know, so probably not the border. Um, <clears throat> yeah, actually, Bocas, Bocas still has some, um, Bocas del Toro Archipelago, I think, still has some malaria. Um, anyway, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the status is, but um, basically, the, the idea was, you know, there is this disease that is highly uh, transmissible that is vectored by these animals that we know. And we've got one country in the middle of a bunch of other countries that seems to have eradicated it. So 
there ought to be, you know, they ought to benefit from having done this job such that if you were trying to travel there, you know, their Costa Rica was trying to build its tourism industry, which it was, um, and it did so well. And it's, you know, it's a great place to be both to do research and to, and to just travel around and explore tropical ecosystems. Um, you, you don't need, nor should you need to be uh, worried about malaria prophylaxis while you're there. Um, but the idea that you could be standing on one side of the border versus the other and need a different thing, uh, need a different prophylaxis is um, obviously imagining that borders are more discreet than they actually are. Well, and you know this, this feels a little bit like that. I, I don't <laughs> think so. My recollection was that as you crossed from Nicaragua into Costa Rica, you had to show evidence that you had prophylaxis. In other words, you had to display your bottle to them. And if you didn't have it, they made you buy it and take it on the spot. Mm. And so from the point of view of Costa Rica, you know, to the extent, yeah, was it perfectly absent from Costa Rica? I'm sure not. Yeah. But um, was it very well managed in Costa Rica? It was. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that Costa Rica can't manage Nicaragua's malaria problem, but it can manage Costa Rica's, you know, where do you get the opportunity to do the opportunity to do that but at the border mm -hmm. and so you know was it perfect no but you know even the arbitrariness of what seemed to be a you know a, a border that the mosquitoes presumably did not respect was about the fact that well you know it's the least arbitrary place to do it yeah i wasn't actually thinking about traveling by land between the places although that is in fact how we Went between them, but you know, if you're back, back, back when I used to uh, consult the CDC um, and thought that they really knew what they were doing, um, and would occasionally be talking to the you know consulting nurse for tropical um, disease at the CDC um, about no, actually, I'm going to this region of this country, and so you know, really, it's going to be a different species of malaria, and your notes don't say that, so I'm going to have to figure out my own prophylaxis regime. Um, it was about like if you're flying in to San Jose versus flying into Managua, Costa Rica versus. Nicaragua, um, having, you know, very different, actually mandatory, um, I think, at, at that point, um, things about what you needed to get into the country when, in fact, you know, they share a border and the mosquitoes don't care. Yeah. Um, is just, you know, feels a little arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. It just reveals that we have categories for things and the categories can be real, but the borders that we put in place look far less fuzzy than they actually are. All right. Um, so there was one more thing that I wanted to pick up on. I don't even remember what you said that prompted me to think about um, the way that the schools are responding to um, to the mask mandates. And I just want to share the first two paragraphs of an email I got from the Portland Public School System yesterday. And you can show my screen if you like, Zach. It says, Dear PPS families, this is again Portland Public School. On Monday, Portland Public Schools, along with the majority of Oregon school districts, will follow the guidance of federal, state, and county officials and make face masks optional in schools. We know this is a big step for all of us and that some families will choose to continue to have their students wear a mask. We urge everyone to practice understanding and compassion. Everyone, masked or not, should feel like they belong, regardless of their own personal decision around COVID-19 safety, including the use of masks. Each family has its own circumstances and deserves respect. Please know that our staff will not attempt to influence your decision on masking and will create safe, inclusive classrooms that respect each individual decision. The rest of the email continues in that sort of framing, um, finishing with reminding us that, of course, getting vaccinated if you're five years old or over is the best way to prevent um, 
to, to keep you and your community safe. And then they have some links to some, um, some materials that you can go over with your student that are clearly designed for like elementary school students, even though they're sending it to high school parents of high schoolers, um, you know, and really pretty insulting to the intelligence of people. Um, but in it, they they remind us, for instance, that uh, in I think it's all, but it might just be most Portland public schools, um, people people like us, the the unvaccinated against COVID, are not actually allowed to go onto the campus for more than fifteen minutes at a time. Uh, and this, um, you know, they want everyone to practice understanding and compassion, personal decision making, respecting each individual decision, um, with regard to masks. Because they are very certain that they need to keep people interested in wearing masks. And if they're scared, then um, the Portland Public Schools are not going to talk to students about how fear damages the ability to actually make conscious, smart decisions in the future. They're going to encourage the fear. They're going to encourage the fear in the language of understanding, compassion, and inclusion. And at the same time, they're going to maintain their policy of not letting people um, who are adults, um, the, the students they have not mandated uh, the vaccines for in the Portland Public Schools, um, they are not going to let the parents of students um, who have rejected this particular plan uh, by the health authorities as a way to uh, protect yourself against disease, which they're now saying the boosters last three months of that. Um, they're not... That's that's not an option. We 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 don't get to, to visit our children in school, um, but we need to practice inclusion and compassion and understanding as we continue to see people masked unto what eternity. And at one school, we've heard that ninety percent of the students say that they're going to keep wearing masks. So, what we really have here ninety percent is a you have a scientific phenomenon, an epidemiological phenomenon that has an actual nature. You have something that has hijacked the response to it and is using things that plausibly interact, right? Is a vaccine relevant to controlling a pathogen? In principle, yes. Not if it doesn't block transmission. Well, right. That's why I say in principle, yes. So mm -hmm. the point is, in principle is not the same as this vaccine that you happen to have that says on the bottle it's for COVID um, is going to be effective. In fact, we know it's not. Right. Um, and has unknown... Uh, risks because it's so mm -hmm. brand new. Yep. Um, but the basic point is what you've got is a public school left with no proper uh, mechanism for navigating. Yep. What exactly is a public school supposed to do when they have been unwittingly drafted into terrorizing their own students over a pathogen using masks, what are they supposed to do at the point that the government, without explanation, lifts those mandates in a way that clearly suggests this has nothing to do with epidemiology? They didn't mandate N95 masks in the first place. They mandated masks. They mm -hmm. then set an arbitrary date for removing the mandate. They then moved that date. They are announcing to us that this is about their control over us. What is the public school supposed to do? Public school can't very well do what we've done and call out the governmental authorities and no, say, um, you're behaving in an arbitrary, non-scientific uh, way, and we can tell, right? What are they to do? They've, you know, advocated and, in fact, enforced the mask mandate on students, despite the harm developmentally that will come to those students for not having their mouths visible to each other for years of their 
lives, right? Are they supposed, how are they supposed to deal with it? I I guess the point is the level to which the message that this is about your safety, the level to which that penetrated people's minds varies. And now on lifting it, what they have done is they've given people an option. But really, the school's job is a developmental job. Yes, that is partly analytical, but it is also about learning how to be in the world. Mm -hmm. That school has a moral obligation to discourage the use of masks to the extent that they are not forced to require them. The developmental value of having everybody visible so that, you know, here's the, the hidden thing. We humans have very specially evolved musculature in our faces to exchange very subtle information about, you know, emotion. And to the extent that that might have been in conflict with a novel virus floating around, fine. But to the extent that we now acknowledge that this is not an effective policy for controlling this virus, then we should actively discourage people from wearing something that blocks it because it is in their educational interest in every regard for them to get all of the messages. Because frankly, these kids have catching up to do. Yeah, they do. They have a lot of catching up to do. And they have catching up to do with regard to um, all sorts of social interactions. And that includes, therefore, also one of the other policies that was widespread, which was about physical distancing, um, which was at first called social distancing. They tried to sort of rebrand that, but it really was between the masks and the Zoom school and the, you know, the distance mandated between students and the not, you know, basically no, you know, no rough and tumble play, not even a touch at all, ever. For you know what? What about for the students who have who come from homes where they don't get anything? Right. Right. Then you, you just you just destroyed a lot of children, and <clears throat> so the masks the mask mandates are lifted. How about how about also letting kids hang out in small groups again? How about letting them actually you know laugh uproariously at lunch and occasionally you know do a spit take. That's never a good idea, but like this is this is part of what growing up is. Well, I think the thing is um I I don't like patting ourselves on the back here. But the right thing to do was to assume a pathogen that could transmit in many different ways and then upon discovery about what the actual mode of transmission was and what was actually useful yeah. to withdraw everything that wasn't justified by its utility in controlling the virus. And so the point is, from very early on, very early on, you could have said, kids, be normal outside, right? Indoors, wear a jacket, we're going to have the windows open, whatever it was that you needed to do. But the point was, as we literally said, more than 99% of the world is safe from this. Why are we telling people that the entire world is dangerous? That's about keeping them in fear for reasons that have nothing to do with controlling a virus. Yeah, yeah. So the, exactly. The messaging was simultaneously, simultaneously, if you care about other people, you will do everything we say. And the way that we are going to get you to do that is you're going to think it's due to your own compassion, but we're actually going to scare the bejesus out of you about everything. The entire world is a dangerous place. There are crazy, crazy viruses lurking around every corner, and you just have, there's, there is no help for it but um, to trust us, because you can tell we got the credentials in the background, and we're the adults here, and boy, could we use some real adults. Yeah. Now, I do wonder what bejesus is and how it got into us, but um, it's not good that I've, suddenly- I've, I've always wondered, but yeah, yeah. But it's the kind of question you don't ask. Well, most people don't ask. Yeah. I don't um, know if I've ever even said it before. <laughs> I don't think you have. I certainly <laughs> haven't been around. Um, 
All right. I, I want was to trying point... not to swear. All right, you did a fairly good job. Yeah. I don't think bejesus is an epithet. Chuleta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's how you uh, you avoid saying terrible things in Spanish, as you say. In, at least in Panama. Yeah. In, in certain places. Um, so I did want to, one last point. Yeah. Is that I think that the arbitrariness of the end of the mask mandate here, which is... Um, as you point out, not by any means the whole thing, because the vaccine mandates lurk behind them, and uh, and the like. But yeah, some, pla- some places, sorry, some places are dropping. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a theater marquee somewhat near us that for months now has said, you know, vaccine required, and that disappeared. And it's been many many months, maybe well over a year. No, wouldn't it be well over a year? But many many months. Uh, and it just disappeared and no, nothing else was said about it. Whereas um, other places, it's getting worse. And actually, we're not going to talk about it this week, but I understand um, that in British Columbia specifically, things are getting far worse, uh, specifically for healthcare workers with regard to vaccine mandates, exactly as most of the rest of, of Canada is at least at least reinvestigating uh, what it is that they're doing um, in the wake not of their... Um, duplicitous Ken doll of a prime minister, but of the bravery of the truckers in taking on uh, many of the stupid rules and standing strong. Well, I think that all of the stuff is going to come apart. Um, you will notice that we have not, what is the name of that snake oil salesman? Fauci. Um, you will notice that we have not seen much uh, of Anthony Fauci lately as he is enjoying. Uh, basically, there was a big puff of squid ink and he vanished into the coral reef and um, is now moved Is he on a to... moray eel? Is that what he is? No, I like moray eels. Um, but uh, anyway, as I think the point is the change of subject is a great relief to people around whom their narrative was collapsing. And I just want to point out one last thing. The arbitrariness, in fact, possibly the explanation for why they set an arbitrary future date and then moved it as the narrative collapsed faster than they expected, Mm -hmm. has to do with the paradox of Rachel Maddow and how she dealt with, people will remember, there was a moment at which they were um, dangling masklessness as a reward, as a perk for vaccination. Mm. And the idea was, well, if you're vaccinated, you don't very well need a mask because you're both immune and not going to transmit this thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So back when that was still the story, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's imagine that they actually believed it at the time. Um, Rachel Maddow had a moment where she said the quiet part out loud on her show where she was literally trying to grapple with the cognitive dissonance that comes from, wait a minute, now the good people are the ones without masks? Like, how is my little mind going to wrap itself around that update, you know? Um, And so the point is this giving you a month to go through the Rachel Maddow moment and get to a place where it's like, okay, got it. I now know who the good people are. Again, I feel comfortable with it. I'm ready to get rid of this mask. Maybe the reason that they didn't do an effective immediately. But the point is these are the kind of people who would not do an effective immediately order even though the well-being of children depended on it. Well, and I mean, I think I'm going to actually switch up the order a little bit here. Um, After you have put so many terrible policies in place that have disrupted the development of young people, to then say 
ah, anything the young person says or feels is the final truth and the final arbiter of how it is that the rest of us are going to interact with them, is an advocation of responsibility at every, every, every level. So we're doing that with regard to kids and, and teenagers and young people who have been just emotionally and psychologically, and in many cases, otherwise as well, extraordinarily damaged by two years of this madness, and who are now like, well, well, I gotta keep wearing it. Like, it's the only, it's like, it's the consistency, right? Like, whatever it is, whatever story it is they tell themselves, it doesn't matter. It is the job of the adults to say, actually, honey, no, it's, it's, it's time for that to go. Because you don't need it, you haven't needed it, and it's bad for you. Same thing with regard to children who de- who wake up one day, you know, on Tuesday they decide they're a dinosaur, and on Wednesday they de- they decide they're Spider Man, and on Thursday they decide that they that they're the sex that they are not, and no one tries to get them surgery to turn them into a dinosaur, <laughs> or you know, decides to wrap them in spider silk, but somehow. Because there is, there are very, very rare disorders uh, in which trans seems to be the best way to proceed with life. The, ma- the majority of people who, especially as children, who are waking up going, you're actually a boy, I'm a girl now, or vice versa. Um, when parents and and health Health professionals say, oh, yeah, no, we're not going to, of course he's not a dinosaur. Of course he's not Spider-Man. But he is a girl because he said he was. And because he said he was a girl, we are going to stop, you know, stop puberty from progressing. And then once we've done that for a while, we are going to start giving cross-sex hormones. And then, I mean, I guess if it's a boy... um, Claiming to be a girl, the surgical interventions don't happen as as a teenager, thank God. But um, the girls who decide to be boys, they're doing what they're calling top surgery on kids. And you never get that functionality back, nor do you get the functionality back associated with cross-sex hormones or with puberty blockers. You just don't. Why would we ever take the word of a child or a teenager as the reality that everything must follow. This is what childhood is. This is not the moment at which they have everything figured out. Everyone who's been a child or a teenager knows this. But especially in an environment in which we have so disordered their development, in the case of trans, through um, through social media, through screens, through, um, you know, uh, hormonal things in the water of various sorts, through plastics and, and such, um, and uh, and through basically woke, crazy gender ideology in schools, and with regard to COVID, with regard to everything we've just talked about, you've disordered the development of children, and now you're going to take what they claim as the God's honest truth, and we need to change what we do to deal, to accommodate their desires and fears? No, it's our job to do the opposite. Well, it's our job to not accommodate their fears and to help them undo some of the damage that we have done to them. Yes, it's effectively a postmodern mask mandate. Yeah. Right. Their yeah. basic point is look, your lived experience, if you think that this does control the virus, then it does keep wearing it. And if you think it doesn't, then you're free to stop. And it's like, no, no, that is not how this works. There's, it either is an effective measure, in which case, why are you eliminating it? Or it, yeah. it isn't an effective measure, in which case, 
Um, everybody needs to take those things off immediately. And abdicating responsibility like this is uh, is absurd. Mm-hmm. But to close this out, I just want to point out, we have traveled the full gamut, right? From, as far as I know, me being the first person in our environment to mask at all, yeah. right? I was masking before, you know, this was a million miles from a mandate at the point that I started masking because yeah. it seemed likely to work. <laughs> I was resentful. Right. You, you were like, you, you're going out to, you know, you put on a mask. Like, right. I don't want to wear a mask. Right. But the point <laughs> is, you know what? When there was no evidence about how it transmitted, made sense to behave that way. As the evidence came in and it became mm-hmm. clear that cloth masks were ineffective, then if there was going to be a mandate, it should have been about masks that stood a chance of working. And at the point it became mm-hmm. clear that this was not an effective way of controlling the pandemic, we should have gotten rid of them because everything has a cost. And this one has a particular cost to children that we should never have been yes. willing to bear. In this case, there are some of the costs that we can absolutely see. And yeah. I remember... Oh, maybe, I don't know, six, 12 months ago, um, at the point that one of the associations for child psychology, I think it was, uh, came out publicly declaring that there was absolutely no impact on little children in like preschool interacting only with masked kids. And then separately, and I won't be able to call it up now, but uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, the CDC quietly and without saying anything, um, changed the benchmarks for language development for young kids. And the number of words that kids are expected to know at various benchmarks has now gotten pushed back by six months in several cases. Why? Huh. I wonder what could possibly be going on in the world for the last two years that would cause all of the American children to suddenly get dumber. They're lowering the goalposts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lowering the yeah. lowering the goalposts. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think I think for the people uh, watching, it is worth thinking about what it takes to drive people who were as interested in figuring out what the best practices were to control this um, this virus uh, as I hate to say they've driven us crazy, but they've certainly made they, they have. Uh, tested our patience remarkably by pretending that all of these measures have the utility they don't when the evidence doesn't support them. Yep. And, um, you know, it, it's been a profound, a profound transition. Yeah, it sure has. Um, God, there's so much, so much we want to do. And, you know, let's, let's, let's talk Orwell a little bit. Of course. Shall we? It's the natural thing to talk about next. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think actually you will no, I think it is the natural yeah. thing to talk about that. <laughs> I think it is. Um, so I just have a number of short uh, short excerpts from this <laughs> tiny little book um, that I want I want to share. Um, let's see. As, so as I say, this is this is the Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell, published in 1937. And as I said last week, it's basically in two parts. The first half being um, the first half being him documenting uh, the living experiences, the lives, um, and including with a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics about how much people are making and how much they're spending on rent and, and various food items and such. Um, the lives of the uh, mostly coal miners, and and which includes also unemployed coal miners in, um, I think it's Lancashire and Yorkshire, maybe. Uh, I admit that I did not remind myself of uh, English 
geography before coming on today. Um, and then the second half is uh, his social analysis, uh, in which he also shares some biographical details of his own life. Um, and he describes himself basically as having had a bourgeois upbringing, uh, but uh, by the numbers, he makes a um, you know sort of lower middle class uh, income. So he's sort of he's he doesn't exactly love this languaging, but he sort of is 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 bringing in money at the sort of upper proletariat level. Um, but his but he pronounces all of his H's is in 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 the language here, and um, so is culturally very much of the bourgeoisie, uh, even though he's making an order of magnitude less than what most people might be considered um, in in the bourgeoisie in England at the time. Um, and so the, the second part of the book from which these quotes are from is him sort of working through why he is in favor of socialism, although I don't think he ever actually defines what he means by that in here, which is, which is interesting, despite having um, basically no appreciation for almost any socialist he has ever met. Um, and I will end um, I, I'd love, I'd love us to talk just a little bit about each of these as I go, but the last couple um, are, his characterizations of socialists, which is, I just, I don't know my history well enough to know what the hell he's talking about, but, but you'll see what I mean. Okay. Um, here we go. This is from chapter nine. He's talking about himself as a young man. Um, I had reduced everything to the simple theory that the oppressed are always right and the oppressors are always wrong. A mistaken theory, but the natural result of being one of the oppressors yourself. I felt that I had got to escape not merely from imperialism, but from every form of man's dominion over man. I wanted to submerge myself, to get right down among the oppressed, to be one of them and on their side against their tyrants. And chiefly because I had had to think everything out in solitude, I had carried my hatred of oppression to extraordinary lengths. At that time, failure seemed to me to be the only virtue. Every suspicion of self-advancement, even to succeed in life to the extent of making a few hundreds a year, seemed to me spiritually ugly, a species of bullying." So this reminds me so much of the kinds of thinking that we were seeing in the in the BLM protests in the summer of 2020 and in the diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology generally that, of course, is what took over Evergreen and is, you know, is, is one thing that you can point to is the reason that we are no longer there, um, that there is a there is a knee jerk duality that people believe in that actually couldn't possibly be representative of what is true of life. Well, it's interesting that that quote you read is timeless or yeah. at least yeah, yeah. Yeah. is equally at home in the present as it was when he wrote it. Uh, I do want, this strikes me as needing one extra level of complexity. Mm -hmm. To what Orwell said. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I've been thinking a lot about socialism and communism and, revolts like the one we are seeing and why you know now yeah mm -hmm. uh that basically to some of us the idea of meritocracy is obviously right mm -hmm. right i don't believe we have one right i don't believe you can have a perfect one but is it the right thing to do yes for many many reasons that are relatively easy to point to mm -hmm. on the other hand if you have a situation in which you define merit as the thing that uh is to be rewarded. Mm -hmm. There comes a point at which many people discover that they are on the losing end of that battle, right? That their tools are not sharp enough to do the job. Now, 
it should be the case that we democratize the tools, right? So that everybody, so that effectively you have the tools, should you be willing to put in the effort to achieve something meritorious enough to, you know, to live well? In Yeah. Insofar as is possible, understanding that uh, there will be no perfect world and you cannot fully democratize uh, either access or origin. Right. Allowing for the noise that will certainly uh, be a countervailing force to merit. Merit is a good thing to prioritize and to try to reward. Mm-hmm. But the point is, what if you had a system that just sucked, right? And that system was prone to miseducate people, to waste their developmental time so that at the point that they arrive at adulthood, they discover they don't have any useful tools, right? That isn't the fault of the people who were miseducated, but it does suggest a reason that they would find themselves in a coalition fighting merit, right? Yeah. The whole idea of fighting merit seems like a paradox until you realize, well, especially in a system that sucks and doesn't equip most people for a meritocracy, why wouldn't you naturally find again and again in history mm. this uh, discovery that maybe meritocracy isn't real, maybe we should, you know, fight the very concept of merit, maybe it's maybe it's an illusion to begin with, mm-hmm. right? You should rediscover that repeatedly, and I have a sense that that's, that's why we are here again, that's why Orwell seems to have written something that would be at home in, you know, 2018, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yep. anyway, we, we should keep it in mind. Yes. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he, there's a, this is from a longer section. I'm mostly going to summarize it. He's talking about um, the bourgeois, um, the bourgeoisie making many pronouncements because they're fashionable, but with which they themselves don't agree. And if, and they are, it's sort of a gentleman's agreement that people will declare that they think that such and such is ridiculous. But if uh, someone, usually from the lower classes, is to come and say exactly the same thing, they'll take umbrage and be like, no, you can't say that. You're not allowed to say that. It's only those of us on the inside. Um, and this is, you know, he, what he's talking about is the, is the bourgeois socialists, right? Like he's not, he's, he's mostly talking about the people who are claiming to be socialists, but who are actually, you know, of the middle class and who are very interested in class distinctions and in, frankly, in maintaining them, um, despite the ideology that they um, propose to uh, follow. Um, so he says specifically, quote, the left-wing opinions of the average intellectual are largely spurious. Um, and I think this is consistent with what we have observed when we say things like the pseudo left and, you know, we still, we still understand ourselves to be on the left because, because while we have a different understanding of what many conservatives actually believe, our fundamental understanding of, of our worldview is not changing even as other people who claim to believe the same things we do are changing. Yeah, it's not about a flag or a jersey. Yeah, right? or or a social group. Right. Right? It's not it's not about social group, it's about actual actual values. And then he says and this may sound well, I'll just read the sentence and see what you think. It is only when you meet someone of a different culture from yourself that you begin to realize what your own beliefs really are. Mhm. Yeah, this reminds me uh, of what you and I <coughs> used to talk about when we would come home from work in the field. Precisely, right? precisely. So we yep. always uh, talked about the culture shock of returning home. If you, you know, it, it's not something you get if you've been gone for two weeks. It's something you get if you've been gone for months or longer. Yeah, and it is. It's a little. Uh, it's a weird connection to make, but it's a little bit like the. 
um, the jarring nature of a hallucinogenic trip, hmm. right? Because it allows you to see your own culture in a way that it is impossible to. And the thing that was most jarring to me when we did it was you come home and the advertising, <laughs> the billboards, and this, the, yeah, and the commercials, and it's mm-hmm. just like you you don't realize that you've gotten used to this just insidious voice that is manipulating you in the most egregious ways. And- well, in this way, actually, our both of our not terrific facility with additional languages uh, makes it easier to exist in a different space and not feel com- completely bombarded. Like, you know, our, <clears throat> we were we were both able to get along okay in various other languages, um, but neither of us is close to fluent. And yeah. so, you know, there's plenty of advertising in Latin American cities. Sure. Plenty of But it's it. not targeted to. We are, we are both not the target. And because the language isn't one in which we have complete fluency, um, it's easier to tune out. Well, it's also, you know, I, uh, as you'll remember, I used to, I, I've gone looking for these photos. I don't, I don't know where they are, but um, the supermarket, right, uh, in Latin American countries, if you look at like the hair color aisle or really the baby food aisle or anything, it's right? a bunch of blonde, blue-eyed. It's, you know, there's yeah. ethnicity to the people on the boxes, but it definitely leans super light-skinned. It has very uh, European overtones, and it just doesn't look like the population in the supermarket. Um, and the, the point is there's a message there about class and refinement and yep. origin and, and all of this. Yep. And it is... Um, well, it, it explains a great deal about why the world works the way it does, right? And uh, yeah. but you can see it very clearly if you're not uh, if you're not Latino and you're in a Latin American supermarket, it's plain as day that there's something weird going on in the shampoo aisle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not plain as day to you at home, right? And uh, so anyway, it's it's. Yes, the adventures away are very useful for seeing yourself. Absolutely, and this is part of you know this is part of a big part of why we both advocate so strongly for travel and not, you know, not Disney-fied travel yeah. at, at all. I mean, that that might be, for some people, that is fun. Um, but travel in which you're actually outside of your own culture and in which, um, you know, we're not saying you have to rough it, but in which you are actually experiencing the world as some other people do and you are other. And you, you know, you will never be other the way that some people live as other inextricably and unchangeably throughout their entire lives. Because at any moment, if you've gone someplace, presumably you can pick up and go home. Yeah. So it's it's different. Um, but existing as the odd thing, the um, the one that can't blend in, that can never be invisible, and that is as also being a trying to be a participant observer, to be a kind of anthropologist, um, and um, and learn, you know, make some friends and learn something about the culture and the food and the music and you know, the festivals and everything, and come to see how many different glorious ways there are of being human on this planet. And then, you know, then to come back and find that it's really hard to communicate a lot of that to the people who weren't with you, you know, to your friends back yeah. home. Uh, to you know, to describe carnival, for instance, or just the experience of, um, you know, getting tacos at any time of day or night for thirty cents a piece, and they're the most delicious thing you ever had, and that's how people eat. And yeah. like, you know, I can say that, but it's just, it's, it's, 
different to be walking in the in the central square and to have that be your life day after day, week after week, month after month. Yeah, I would say there's a temptation uh, to travel in ways that people solve problems for you. And it is a little bit mm-hmm. hard to, it is very true, but a little bit hard to defend that part of what the most important aspect of the whole thing is, is what you what you will happen onto as you solve yeah. utterly mundane problems, right? And the, like, so, I need to go buy a comb. How do I, you know? Exactly. And there we are. We're back at serendipity, which is a theme from last week and a theme that I bring up all the time. And it was actually one of the um, one of the tensions that I felt. Um, and I, I may have even talked about this on air before, but... Um, you know, I loved doing the study abroad that I did. And, you know, we, of course, did the 11-week study abroad as our as our final one, but I had done several before that. And it really was one of the things that I felt that I could I could bring to students um, very uniquely to, you know, some students who'd never been more than 50 miles away from where they've been born, help them get a passport, help them get a grant and take them to the Amazon. <laughs> it's like, you know, look at the world, right? It's amazing. Um, but I was, I was a little bit... Um, of two minds about it, because while I left a lot of open space and a lot of room for serendipity and a lot of room for people to make mistakes, um, including mistakes that were cultural and that maybe put them at some some risk, um, the fact is that I I organized everything. You know, there there was one moment I remember when I'm like, okay, it's 16 months away, and I'm planning lunch because you know because we're gonna be on a boat here and then here, and like we have to know exactly where we're gonna stop because we're gonna have 30 people, and you know we need to we yeah. need to have planned lunch. That's a level of planning that I could do, and I did, and you know it was. Uh, you know, and it was rewarding in its way, but the students knowing that they were in the capable hands of someone who had done all the planning meant that they were not going to have the same kind of learning experience um, that they would if they had just um, even just had to pack for themselves without a, you know, without a carefully constructed packing list. Right. And and likewise um, for many of them, even at the point that they're on their own in some city, uh, they will often go out in a large group, which mm-hmm. uh, diffuses the responsibility and reduces the value of the problem solving that one does. And you know, it's like people who are familiar with college campuses. What freshmen do for the first couple of weeks yeah. on campus, you know, they combine into a group, and it's like, oh, that's 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 freshmen because it's fourteen of them, right? Um, but it was always uh, always interesting to see which students actively chose not to do that. Right. And, you know, the student that, you know, you're yep. you're all the way across Panama City and you run into them and they're alone. Yeah. Right. That's always an interesting student. Yeah. Right. That's totally. somebody who quickly learns about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. Let's do a couple more. Um, let's see. This is end of chapter 10. This, then, is the net result of most meetings between proletarian and bourgeois. They lay bare a real antagonism, which is intensified by the proletarian cant, itself the product of forced contacts between class and class. The only sensible procedure is to go slow and not force the pace. If you secretly think of yourself as a gentleman, and as such the superior of the greengrocer's errand boy, it is far better to say so than to tell lies about it. Ultimately, you have got to drop your snobbishness, but it is fatal to pretend to drop it before you are really ready to do so. 
Meanwhile, one can observe on every side that dreary phenomenon, the middle-class person who is an ardent socialist at 25 and a sniffish conservative at 35. In a way, his recoil is natural enough. At any rate, one can see how his thoughts run. Perhaps a classless society doesn't mean a beatific state of affairs in which we shall all go on behaving exactly as before, except that there will be no class hatred and no snobbishness. Perhaps, actually, it means a bleak world in which all our ideals, our codes, our tastes, our ideology, in fact, will have no meaning. Perhaps this class-breaking business isn't so simple as it looked. On the contrary, it is a wild ride into the darkness, and it may be that, at the end of it, the smile will be on the face of the tiger. With loving, those slightly patronizing smiles, we set out to greet our proletarian brothers, and behold, our proletarian brothers, insofar as we understand them, are not asking for our greetings, they are asking us to commit suicide. <laughs> when the bourgeois sees it in that form, he takes to flight, and if his flight is rapid enough, it may carry him to fascism. Yeah, it is it's extraordinary. It's tragic that he didn't live longer and tragic yeah. that we don't have him uh, presently. Yeah. Uh, there, there's so much in there. One is this sort of sense that the um, the downtrodden are of fundamentally better stuff, which they in fact may be as long as they're downtrodden. But the point is what turns the elite terrible, and it's not universal, but what turns the elite terrible is the elite status and so that whoever <laughs> acquires it ends up either you know it has to deliberately fight the transition into that thing yeah right or it happens to them right you can't you know if, if the first will be last and the last will be first then the point is well you're going to reinvent the problem with new actors right you know? yes yes it's still people it's still it's people. still people <laughs> and the game theory is still the game theory yeah yeah you, you ain't done nothing to change that yeah um okay one uh, two more Let me see. I got to figure out what I'm starting with. The kind of person. Here we go. The kind of person who most readily accepts socialism is also the kind of person who views mechanical progress as such with enthusiasm. And this is so much the case that socialists are often unable to grasp that the opposite opinion exists. As a rule, the most persuasive argument they can think of is to tell you that the present mechanization of the world is as nothing to what we shall see when socialism is established. Where there is one airplane now, in those days there will be 50. All the work that is now done by hand will then be done by machinery. Everything that is now made of leather, wood, or stone will be made of rubber, glass, or steel. It's pretty plastic. There will be no disorder, no loose ends, no wildernesses, no wild animals, no weeds, no disease, no poverty, no pain, and so on and so forth. The socialist world is to be, above all things, an ordered world, an efficient world. God. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... Uh, I mean, it's it's true that it's true, and and you know it, it really goes. There to is what... a there is a dislike, and you know, sorry, but like, I think the stereotype is that, um, and and this is true of some conservatives, is that they want to control nature, and that they you know, and they and I remember seeing some stuff early in SARS in in, in COVID, right, with some prominent conservatives saying like, just control it, just kill the virus, just like yeah. you know, get in a bottle and get rid of it, and it's like, well, that's a naive understanding, but you know, he he lays out. A bunch of the history that at that point wasn't history that he was living through in which he really demonstrates that that's actually the you know the love of mechanization and of having machines do all the work that is currently done by by laborers is part of the utopian vision of the socialists at that point anyway yes and you know it's it's oddly inconsistent right because i think probably this is the influence of you know, dilettante socialists. Yeah. 
that the point is the yep. machinists are going to be aware of the trade-offs inherent in things and they may of course in, envision machines doing things but they will not you know they will envision tolerances and right. noise in the system and failure and all of that they won't have this yep. you know this shiny view of everything being you know a life of leisure because the machines are doing all the work <laughs> you know uh, but anyway it's curious yeah um okay one more with I'm just going to read this one. <laughs> this is from chapter 11. The last one was from chapter 12. This is from chapter 11. The first thing that must strike any outside observer is that socialism in its developed form is a theory confined entirely to the middle class. The typical socialist is not, as tremulous old ladies imagine, a ferocious-looking working man with greasy overalls and a raucous voice. He is either a youthful snob Bolshevik, who in five years' time will quite probably have made a wealthy marriage and been converted to Roman Catholicism, <laughs> or, still more typically, a prim little man with a white-collar job, usually a secret teetotaler and often with vegetarian leanings, with a history of nonconformity behind him, and above all, with a social position which he has no intention of forfeiting. This last type is surprisingly common in socialist parties of every shade. It has perhaps been taken over en bloc from the old liberal party. In addition to this, there is the horrible, the really disquieting prevalence of cranks wherever socialists are gathered together. One sometimes gets the impression that the mere words socialism and communism draw towards them with magnetic force every fruit juice drinker, nudist, sandal wearer, sex maniac, Quaker, nature cure quack, pacifist, and feminist in England. <laughs> All right. I'm feeling good because I think I nailed two of these on this podcast. I don't know what his problem with vegetarians and feminists and nature. Like, I, this is such a crazy list. We well, could spend so long on this list. No, it may be. It may be that um, basically you get that there's something pathological about being drawn at a certain level into causes, right? Yes. Causes are important. But yes. the point is he's identifying people who who synonymize themselves. <laughs> but sandal wearers, Brett. <laughs> and he's all, he also talks about beard havers. Beard, I mean, that's, beard that's, havers. That he does, yeah. That's not his language. I don't remember what he calls it, but like bearded bearded teetotalers or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, but hold on. I, I want to recover two things. One of them, he says exactly the thing that I said just a moment before you read that, where he basically says, you'd think that these socialists are, yeah, you know, no, these yeah. hardworking, hard-headed yeah, nope. people. They're not. It's no. not them. He specifically calls out the machinist. Um, <laughs> and what was the other thing? Damn, I've lost it. Was it about his um, his hatred of Quakers and people who think nature can cure things? Well, no, I think it was... Or fruit juice drinkers? Um in his listing of all of these things, mm -hmm. right, he is talking about people who do not sound well endowed for meritocracy. We're talking about people who've narrowed their scope to, you know, whatever it is that sandal wears to narrow their scope to. <laughs> I mean, um, he's talking about, if he's talking about hip, some of that is like descriptive of hippies before hippies exist, but... Um, Right, but but the point is, if if what I'm saying is true, yeah. and that in effect there is this ever-present pull to rebel against merit, right, mm -hmm. to declare mm -hmm. merit a fiction, where would you tend to find it, right? You would find it amongst people who have overly synonymized themselves with something that isn't productive, right? Vegetarianism may be good or it may be bad, but it's not productive, right? It's not like... 
So I don't know what nature cure, he's got that in quotes, capitalized, exactly refers to there, but um, there's certainly a lot in the phrase that I can, I can, I can put a lot of good sense to. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, you know, feminism has had a lot of missteps, but that was, you know, we're in first wave feminism era at that point. And uh, the idea of, you know, being allowed to work outside the home and keep your name when you get married. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't I just I'm I'm so curious because he, he goes off on with lists like that a few times at the yeah. end of the book. That's just one of them. Um, and, you know, every I was listening, I was walking in this park with all these people unmasked around me. And I would just start laughing out loud like, oh, he's off on another tirade about people with beards and wearing sandals. Well, let's try this out. Though. Okay. Um, you know this thing that I always say, uh, I am a liberal who wants to live in a world so good that I get to be a conservative. Yeah. Right. I think most people don't understand what I'm getting at, but, but the point is I actually do want to see something done. And at the point that it's done, continuing to try to do it doesn't make any sense. It's not action for action's sake. Right. So yeah. mm-hmm. map that onto feminism. Sure. Right. I'm a feminist that wants to live in a world so egalitarian that I don't have to be a feminist. Mm-hmm. Right. That seems to make sense to me. Right. doesn't mean we're there. On the other hand, where we are is something that should always be a question because whether or not. I, I agree with you. I, I just not everything on that list works. I'm a sandal wearer who wants to live in a world so cold that I can't wear sandals. Like I, you know, I just can't quite make yeah, it. Yeah, I work. admit it doesn't. It doesn't map onto everything. <laughs> and and again, the na- you know nature cure may have been some particular thing, but I mean I, I do think your larger point about belonging, about signifiers of tribalism, um, really like people who both you know want to adopt the latest thing, and you know we we heard about this and we saw this directly both at Evergreen and we see it in the Black Lives Matter movement and we see it frankly with COVID, people who are just like, oh, I, and you know, we see it in social media tags. We're like, oh, it, it went from it went from syringes to Ukrainian flags, right? In, right. in people's names on social media, and, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna signal that I'm on the next big thing, and. Like, did you even know anything about vaccines, the Ukraine or any of this before uh, you were told that this is what you were supposed to think about now? Oh, but you like to feel like you're inside. And, you know, so so doesn't everyone at some level. But if you, if that is one of your driving things, then maybe you end up being one of these bearded, sandal-wearing, vegetarian feminists that Orwell so rails against. Yep. I, and I still want to... Fruit juice drinker. I still want to abstract it out. Okay. Because, you know, if you decided... Um, that, uh, you know, merit was synonymous with, um, uh, deadlifting, right? That we're going to okay. be able to figure out how meritorious and we're going to reward you based on how meritorious you are, based on how, how much you can deadlift. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like a world that I'm very much in favor of merit, mm-hmm. right? That sounds like a world that's been stacked. The cards have been stacked against me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so... One can imagine that for any description of merit, some large number of people will be able to look at it and say, okay, that's a world in which I lose. I'm not for that world, right? And that the question is, does Orwell's seemingly arbitrary list of things that we can't even quite figure out what he's talking about, is the idea that Mm -hmm. people who are likely to end up on that list very closely synonymized with some quirk, Mm -hmm. are those also people who are likely not to be on board with the idea of merit because they, it feels like a conspiracy against them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Something like that. No, I think, I think, I think that's right. I think you're on to something. Um, you said on to something, not on something. I, I, you may be, but I had not yet formulated a hypothesis on that front. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, it's, 
It's already 2.15, our time. Um, but you have been saying for a couple of weeks now that you want to talk a little bit about uh, why the why the origin of SARS-CoV-2, likely through uh, some serial passaging research, uh, affects, you know, makes a difference. It's not just a, an historical question, um, but uh, um, potentially makes a difference in terms of the epidemiology. Yep. Uh, well, and specifically the, the individual level illness, right? It makes a, a big difference <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, that effectively is why we are still fighting over whether it had a laboratory origin. And it became very common, especially amongst sophisticates who had not been early on the lab leak issue mm -hmm. to declare, what does it matter? Uh, we're stuck with this virus now, let's just deal with it. And the answer right. is actually few things matter more. The obvious reason is that to the extent that this is the product of a laboratory accident, knowing how that could possibly have happened so that we can prevent it is essential, but, but that's obvious. Mm -hmm. What I think is not obvious is how much harm was likely done by that route. Mm. And this is why we have to get this right. So a couple points. Um, one, I believe and I hope that we are ultimately able to get past all of the people who want to prevent uh, an honest exploration. Uh, I believe that what we had was a brief period of time after SARS-CoV-2 emerged in the world in which we really could have driven it to extinction, just as SARS-CoV-1 effectively is extinct, mm -hmm. right? It but, seems to have driven itself to extinction. Right. It mm -hmm. did not have, it didn't have the, the, the goods to keep going. And the question mm -hmm. is, could we have delivered SARS-CoV-2 sufficient disadvantage in transmitting if we had gotten to it early mm -hmm. and had taken the politics out of it? Could we have driven it to extinction? And I believe what we now know suggests that we probably could have, right? Or that failing that, we could have driven it to a state uh, of extreme rarity where it's effectively extinct, like rabies in the first world. Um, so... If that is true, if what happened was, however this thing emerged into the world, let's assume the best, let's assume uh, it was research, that it was well-intentioned research rather than dual-purpose weapons research, let's assume they were trying to figure out, they were really afraid of a, a pathogen getting into the world uh, of a particular nature, they wanted to study it so that they would be ahead of the game when it happened, and they goofed and it escaped, right? That's still a terrible story, and I believe uh, likely the pathogen never would have made the jump no pathogen like the one that they were looking at would have made the jump and become yep. a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the point is everything that happens negative as a result of that jump having been made with human assistance goes on the bill of the people who made the error uh, in judgment. But before you go, but um, which is part of why I think it's so important for the messaging coming from those people and the people who side there on uh, to convince the world uh, that it has a zoonotic origin. Basically, it it, it furthers, you know, it, th they could not be responsible for something of zoonotic origin, um, but it also helps keep the population in fear. Oh my God, at any moment in, in a, in a, in a world that is populated as we are, where we're constantly going into wilderness areas and running into animals, ooh, scary animals, then um, at any moment we could have another one of these things. We'd better keep things clean. We'd better trust the authorities. We'd better, well, um, you know, get the public health policy, you know, and, and, you know, what the WHO is working on right now is ridiculously scary. And it, um, you know, they are actually playing on people's fear that they have, that this entire situation has created in order to move forward a, you know, authoritarian mandate that potentially has the capacity to undermine um, sovereign governments. 
this goes squarely back to what we discussed last week with the fact that the um, the mechanism of procuring grants has turned all sorts of people that we need to do objective science into salesmen. Yep. They don't even necessarily understand that that's what they've become, mm -hmm. right? It is, it is so reflexive. And so in effect, there is a section of each of the grants that goes towards such research mm -hmm. that says something akin to, you know, as the human population expands, we are coming into more and more contact with wildlife and wildlife is being pressured to blah, blah, blah. That is going to result in pathogens mm -hmm. that normally circulate amongst wild animals, making a zoonotic jump to people, at which point, boom, and then you come up with some really crazy level of fear about what type of pathogen could suddenly emerge and not be controllable. And therefore, why it is absolutely essential that every God-fearing, mask-wearing, grant-giving agency has to deliver a huge amount of money to these people who are the only ones to study the pathogen before it leaps out of a cave and gets us all. Yeah, because what will probably be obvious but might not be known to people is that every grant application... Um, that I have ever seen, and I saw a ton of them back when I spent a year working uh, with the grant agency, University of California at Santa Cruz, many years ago, but have since seen and heard about many, many others, is that, um, yes, they are supposed to be assessed on their scientific merits, but there is a section of every single one, and as I remember it, actually many grant applications begin and end with versions of that same section, and that section is basically explain why you deserve money which is not the same as explain why this is good science. Well, and so there you know there needs there hopefully there is good science in the stuff that is being funded but the decision to fund is based in part and it's got to be largely given that it's bracketing almost every grant application you know what what is it about your work that demands funding now which means increasing the sense of urgency uh, is more likely to get you funding. Right. And so it, it effectively is smoke and mirrors boilerplate. And the basic point <laughs> yeah, 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 is yeah. either the people reviewing the grant are in on why this isn't exactly true, but they're not going to call it out because they're in the same business, yep. or they can't see through it because they don't have the expertise that would tell them why that's a bullshit story, right? right? You know, human beings expanding and coming into more and more contact with wildlife, bullshit, mm -hmm. right? Now it happens there are more people, and it happens we are backing the wild farther and farther away, but people coming into contact with wildlife is the entire history of people, right? right? Which means most of the things that can make an easy jump have done it. A higher right? proportion of the human population was always in more contact with wildness than the proportion of the human population that is in contact with wildness is now. Right. And viewers may be interested to go back to my unheard essay where I, as a former bat biologist... This is a different one than you referenced earlier. Yeah. I, as a former bat biologist, go through the question, at the point that COVID emerges into the world, I then have to wonder if being in contact with bats is enough to unleash a pandemic like this, could I have accidentally done it when I was in contact with bats? And the answer is very likely not, that this is actually a difficult evolutionary jump and that there, you know, you have lots of people, you have thousands of people studying bats at any one time. Mm -hmm. We're not constantly causing pandemics. Why is that? And the answer is because the thing that they say at the beginning of those grant applications about the danger of this happening on any given Tuesday, right? That's bullshit designed to get the system to spit out money. That's right. And so, okay, in light of all that, You've got the bullshit designed to get the system to spit out money. It spits out money to fund a reckless kind of research that is very likely to do exactly the thing that nature is not well poised to do, 
right? It's very likely to unleash a pathogen into the world. Yeah, that's Is the it one. this one? <clears throat> okay. Um, so you might just suck. Let dad keep talking, but um, just put it on the screen for a moment and I'll post in the show notes too. Go for it. So in effect, you've got a difficult evolutionary leap um, that a pathogen would have to make in order to become a human pandemic. Mm -hmm. Then you have humans who are clever, but not that clever, proposing to do exactly the thing that will make it a small evolutionary leap, Mm -hmm. right? They're proposing to use... Uh, trampolines and catapults to get the thing across the <laughs> gap mm-hmm. to become capable of in, of creating a pandemic on the basis of the absurd argument that in order to know what to do about a pandemic, we're going to have to create something that's capable of making one, mm-hmm. which of course runs the risk that the thing is going to leap into the uh, the world at any moment because lab accidents are not uncommon at all. Yep. Um, and so, okay, so then the question is, well, what about the people... Mm-hmm. Frankly, like Sam Harris, who said, uh, well, you know, I, I wasn't, I, Sam, wasn't animated about the question of lab leaks because at some level it's an academic question. We've got this virus. What's the best way to deal with it? Right. And the answer is no. This makes all the difference in the world because what in effect is going on, if you think back to the Natural Origins paper, the Christian Anderson led paper, so Christian Anderson interacted with Fauci behind closed doors in his email. Uh, Anderson um, argued that, in fact, the virus as they were coming to know it was inconsistent with evolutionary theory. It could not have come about naturally, and effectively, a plan emerges to obscure that, and suddenly there's a reversal, of course, and Anderson and uh, his academic cronies cook up a paper that says, this virus has to have come from nature. It couldn't have come from the lab, and here's how you know. And their argument is nonsense. Their argument is, we would not have known that the structure we see would be any good at infecting people. Therefore, we wouldn't have planned it this way. If people were going to make a virus, they wouldn't have made this one, which is true. What they didn't say was that there's another mechanism, that we're not that good at doing things like describing a virus that's going to infect people. But what we're really good at doing is borrowing tools from nature, Mm -hmm. right? We borrow enzymes to do genetic engineering. We borrow antibiotics to fight off bacteria. We borrow evolution to solve problems we are not smart enough to solve yet. And so serial passaging was the thing that they were avoiding describing in that manuscript, right? So they do not say what we're going to do or what likely has accounted for the existence of this virus is that the virus, a ancestor virus, was passed from one individual to another, evolving along the way to answer the question, how would you make a pathogen for humans if you don't know enough to specify its molecular nature? So what that in effect does is it creates a virus with the characteristics that the people who ran the experiments wanted it to have, um, but it also has other characteristics. So at the same time, they were selecting for uh, the capacity to infect human tissues, they were also selecting for what I would call explorer modes. They were selecting Mm -hmm. for a virus that was experimenting. Mm -hmm. Um, Furthermore, if you think about the question of what virus we ended up with, you know, you and I, Heather, have been very careful not to fall into the trap of saying this isn't a dangerous virus. Right? right From the beginning, we talked about the fact that actually this is quite a scary virus and that the level of 
uh, danger is not captured in the comparatively low case fatality rate, mm -hmm. right? There seems to be lots of harm done uh, around the body mm -hmm. that uh, isn't captured there, which, you know, my telomere work suggests is going to accelerate aging and shorten lives. Yep. Yep. So, so then the point is, is anything about what makes this virus actually dangerous uh, the result of the mechanism used to generate it? And um, the, point, the point I want to make is, let's say that you used ferrets, which have an ACE2 receptor similar to humans, in order to get evolution to solve the question of how you take a virus poorly adapted to infect humans, the ancestor uh, virus to SARS-CoV-2, and get it to be really good at infecting humans. So uh, ferrets are a likely serial passage organism so-called humanized mice, mice that have been altered so they are molecularly more similar to humans, yep. are a likely place for serial passaging, and yep. human airway tissue, which can be purchased yep. and basically uh, uses evolution to solve the question of how to get from cell to cell um, in human airways. So all of these things are places where evolution could have been used to solve this puzzle. Yep. But what will happen? Let's take the ferret example. In nature, a virus that infects a ferret needs to leave the ferret capable of doing ferret stuff in order for the ferret to spread the virus to others. Otherwise, the you know you remember the R not term how uh, you know how many cases can an individual case spur? If a, if a right. ferret is only capable of infecting its you know family members in the burrow and it's not going to encounter other ferrets in the population, and neither then, are they. Right, then R naught is going to be less than one and the thing will go extinct. So that's not mm -hmm. a successful plan. So the point is, there's certain pathogens that don't work this way. Malaria, for example, knocks you flat on your ass. Why? Because you're not spreading it. Mosquitoes are. So you being so The exhausted, analysis is different with a vectored pathogen. Right. Because if you're lying down and you can't swat a mosquito, then the mosquito is in a good position to pick it up and move it. And the analysis will be different uh, with a waterborne, um, waterborne. And you know, as everyone you know became familiar with and probably mostly forgot the difference, it's going to be different for aerosolized versus airborne. Yep. Um, for you know, foam light transmission, you know, sure. mode of transmission, vector versus not. All of these are going to have different predictions um, that come along with them about whether or not you expect virulence to evolve um, <clears throat> to be a pathogen to become more virulent over time in a population or less um, population density of course as well so um, if you're going to use laboratory serial passaging yep what you are doing is you're actually creating a route that the pathogen couldn't go through in nature and i would just point to several features of this virus that are probably far worse by uh, virtue of the fact um, that serial passaging is the likely explanation for where they came from. Critically, if a pathogen, in order to get from one individual to the next, let's say a respiratory pathogen requires you to be mobile, uh -huh. so you can't be terribly sick, right? Then trade-offs being what they are, it has an incentive not to do any damage to tissue that isn't directly involved in transmission right? Mm -hmm. To the extent that you have tissues that aren't capable of spreading the virus <clears throat> because they're not exposed to the outside world and everybody who contracts the virus is getting it uh, from a respiratory source, mm -hmm. then the point is, well, that reduces your mobility without increasing transmissibility. So nature wouldn't do that. On the other hand, if you've got ferrets caged together, 
where they don't have to find each other and they don't have to, you know, look healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine, you know, creatures in nature are liable to have a revulsion for individuals of their species who look sickly, right? It's natural that you would evolve that um, because, of course, not every sickly individual has something transmissible, but a lot of them do. And so sickly individuals are something to be avoided. But if you're caged with a sickly individual, your preference to avoid them doesn't matter because you can't avoid them. Mm -hmm. So lots of things about this, maybe even anosmia, right? To the extent that a ferret, in order not to starve to death, has to depend on its extraordinary sense of smell, right? A virus that disrupts that extraordinary sense of smell is immediately going to cause a foraging problem for a ferret. Yeah. But not not in a cage where the ferret eats ferret kibble. Right. Mm -hmm. So you could get things like anosmia, which wouldn't naturally be likely to happen because the ferret needs to be ecologically capable. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, that's so there might be two different possible approaches. Like anosmia might be adaptive in this situation and not in a, you know, a normal ferret situation or, um, and this seems far more likely the one that you've proposed, uh, anosmia might be acceptable and not come with the normal cost in the situation that it would in a wild ferret population. Right, exactly. In this case, anosmia is annoying. It's not obvious that it has long-term implications, but the point is it does seem conspicuous, right? Much like a virus that can only be transmitted indoors, well, that also seems like an arbitrary uh, laboratory phenomenon potentially. Mm, that that one strikes me more like it's about effective volume, and uh, you know I think m- most most viruses that are sort of airborne aerosolized are going to at least have a strong be much more likely to transmit indoors. Although uh, the degree to which that is true for this one does seem extreme. No, I I agree that they will. It'll be more likely for any respiratory virus that is not. Yeah. Uh, fomite transmitted. But the degree to which it is true in this virus is conspicuous for something that supposedly uh, came from the wild. Yeah. And of course, the point is trade-offs are under all of this. So yeah. if you can borrow from outdoor transmission without a cost because you're in caged animals, then you will tend to borrow in that and you will get something on some other characteristic that, you know, we don't know. The two are connected. Yep. Um but anyway, my, my, and you know, this one, it may be that the laboratory origin actually worked for us because it left the outside environment a place that one could actually be safe, if not for bad CDC advice and things like that. Well, but, but for the laboratory origin, we wouldn't have it at all. So well, cool. you, know, well, I'm not, I mean, you don't want to go down that road too far. You can't, you can't. No, I, I started by saying, <laughs> okay. uh, if laboratory origin, then effectively... Yeah. You've got everything yes, downstream, everything downstream. Of COVID belongs on their bill. Yes. Even worse to the extent that people then took a crisis that we could potentially have ended if we had behaved in a coordinated and smart fashion and decided to utilize it for other purposes. Yeah, right? some people so, made bank. Well, not even made bank. The point is, yeah. human. let's say that this was a mild disease. Let's say that this was somewhere between cold and flu, mm-hmm. Okay. The cost to humanity, in fact, even the number of deaths is incalculable if you're stuck with it forever, mm-hmm. right? And so the point is the costs of this even virus. Even if that was it. Even if that was it. Yeah. You know, okay, we had flu and now we got another one, right? Yeah. That is a disaster. Mm-hmm. And for anyone to have used this for their own purposes 
and at the same time run out the clock that that was running on us actually controlling the thing is uh you know it, it's it's diabolical yeah and i mm, go on okay so let me let me just close this out yeah. so you've got various characteristics that may you know, these are hypotheses, may be connected to serial passaging in a laboratory environment that is not like nature. One of them is the exploratory nature of this uh, uh, pathogen, right? The tropism for different tissues is uh, high, and it may even be that its ability to jump species is high because it's been run through, you know, some training courses. Um, tropism you're using in a way that is that I'm not familiar with. It's a different definition than in botany, although maybe it's it's an affiliation for yeah, effectively. Right, yeah. right. Okay. Um, yeah. So phototropic, the yeah. tendency to yeah. seek the light. Tropism yeah. in this case means yeah. its ability to affect different tissues. Yeah. In effect, there is a constraint on a natural virus. Don't infect tissues that don't help spread the virus so that you leave the animal as healthy as possible so it can go around and do the spreading. Mm -hmm. In this case, if you've got, you know, animals caged so that they don't have to be any good at being animals, right? They're just cellular environments. Then you lift a constraint. And the question is, is part of the large number of tissues that seem to be negatively impacted by this virus, the result of the fact that it was in a highly unusual circumstance in which animals couldn't get away from each other, um, if that's what happened, then the point is much of the harm that comes to an individual who gets sick with this may be the result of its unnatural origin. And so, right. in effect, all of the explanations that say, look, okay, if it came from a lab, we need to know that so it doesn't happen again. But short of that, none of this matters. No, it all matters. And what you really need are people who are uh, informed enough and uh insulated from the incentives that they can actually have a conversation about how much harm came to humanity from which errors, right? And the errors just continued to compound. Well, or you could make the founder of EcoHealth Alliance the lead on the investigation of what the origin of SARS-CoV-2 was for the trip to China. I mean, that seems yeah. like there's no conflict there. No, you could just tell him that he's got a new job and his new job is to find out whether this came from the lab. And I'm sure he would, yeah. you know... His new job is to see if he's a criminal in a past life, which is to say a current life. This is cool. You were, this is this is next next level uh, criminal investigation where <laughs> the people who do the investigation are the people who are in the best position to do it by virtue of the fact that they committed the crime and therefore know exactly what happened. They're in nearly complete possession of the information necessary to, to prosecute. It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's almost meritorious. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, boy, there is a lot that we were thinking we might get to today. Um, and we didn't, but, uh, we will be back. We will be back next week. We'll be earlier. Um, I will say it's, you know, you guys, unless you're in Portland watching live right now, <clears throat> we'll have not be having this experience, but it was so gorgeous and spring-like here this morning. And I was outside and I came home and I said to our younger son, Toby, who's 15, I said, go out, like go out on your like, unicycle, enjoy this because according to my phone, <clears throat> by three o'clock it's gonna be raining and it's never gonna stop. And it's raining now. It's It turned completely gross out there. And it feels, it, it, it's amazing how you can feel when you're in a weather system. Like this is now what is. And it's part of why the sun for those of us who like the sun, I think that's almost everyone. We're like, oh, this is wonderful. I feel good. And then as soon as this happens, I'm like, well, damn. Well, it's <laughs> it's worth talking about another time. But yeah. I actually think that there is something 
just as it is hugely different to write with a word processor than a typewriter, as mm -hmm. you and I were talking about earlier this week, yep. there's something hugely different to have seen weather mm -hmm. at large scale by virtue of modern tech. Yeah. Imagine living, you know, if you if you if you had never seen a satellite image or yeah. something, and you saw the sun shine the way it, it felt like it was going to last forever, yeah. and then you know to have it change so radically is. Obviously, everybody experiences that, but you know, we of course know exactly what that looks like. It looks like a system blowing yeah. across. And actually, I mean, this is also kind of new technology, but um, we've had the opportunity to be in a couple of different canopy towers in the Amazon, uh, where um, yes, by dint of someone else's hard work, you know, pulling wood and and uh, and hardware up a tree you end up with a platform that you can climb up to 120 feet up a canopy tree or so and you can look out I'm thinking of the one at Tepatini in particular where you can actually look out so you're we're actually I think it's in a is it in a seba and it's an emergent tree so you're slightly above much of the canopy I can't uh, there, remember. There are a couple, but that one, uh, I think it is a saber tree. Yeah, I think it is. Anyway, you can you can actually look out over the canopy. You're not still, I mean, you are in it, and you, oh, the bird life up there is amazing. But you can look, and at some moments, you can actually see from a long way off the weather coming at you. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, it starts to taste different. Like, you can feel the ozone. You can feel the electricity. Like, you can, you can, you can feel it viscerally, but to also be able to be up there and see it. Get really, really wet. Yeah. Um, you hear is, the is announcing it. <laughs> the is announcing it. Yeah, yeah. incredible. Um, but it's still not satellite level. Yeah. It's not. It's not that zoomed out. Um, all right, we are going to take a break, um, and we'll be back for those of you listening live in 15 minutes or, or less, even uh, with the live Q and A. Again, you can ask questions at www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. We'll get to as many of them as we can. Uh, we always take a question uh, from uh, that is voted on on the Discord server every week, and you can find access to that, that um, lovely community on our Patreons. Uh, if you have logistical questions, uh, you can email the darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com. And um, consider reading our book, which I've hidden under a pile of paper, it looks like. Um, and be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Save the masks for Halloween. Be well, everyone. <laughs>